Well, we've been going through a series examining some of the spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith. And I, I've been leaning heavily on the work of Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline. Last week, we looked at the discipline of submission. We saw teachings of Jesus which reminded his followers that they were to live a radical life of self-denial. They were to love their enemies. They were to think of the needs of others above themselves, deny themselves, and take up their cross. This submission to Jesus is the foundation of the attitude that we're going to look at this morning, a call to service. Now, in in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, we're given a glimpse into one of the discussions of the disciples. It tells us that an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. The the, the disciples are hanging out, and in accordance with human nature, they start jostling, trying to figure out that hierarchy. I'm sure they started trying to one-up each other. Matthew's bragging about Jesus coming to his parties. Judas is boasting about being the keeper of the bag of money. You know, Peter's probably flexing at saying, hey, I'm the only disciple that actually walked on water before the others reminded him that it didn't take too long before he started sinking, needed to be bailed out by Jesus. But they were arguing to figure out their pecking order, who was the greatest. Now, what's implicit in this question Right? What's implicit in this jostling for position is also the question, not just who's the greatest, but well, who's, who's the least? And for many of us, this, this is our worst fear. And we, we don't want to be the bottom of the barrel. We probably know that we can't be the smartest, we can't be the richest, we can't be the coolest person in the room, but we'd be content being in the top three, or at least the top half. Lord, as long as we're not dead last. Right? It's the, the, that, that age-old image of you know, getting recess getting picked for kickball, and you just don't want to be the last one. But Jesus teaches an upside-down kingdom, that if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the least. And he demonstrated this act, as we looked at last week, where he washed, he humbled himself and washed the feet of the disciples. Now, it could be argued that the cross is that symbol of submission. Last week, we talked about living a cross life and thinking of others first. And so if that is the symbol of submission, I would argue that the symbol of service is the towel. Now the difference between them is even in submission, we can give our lives for the kingdom of God. We can give our lives in ways that are spectacular. Foster says, quote, radical self-denial gives the feel of adventure. We celebrate those who submitted like Jim Elliott to give up his life, dying a martyr's death in Central America, going out in a blaze of glory. But service, on the other hand, is like experiencing many little deaths over and over and over again. It's mundane. It's ordinary. There's nothing glorious about it. If we're serious about following Jesus then we must come to terms with this calling to empty ourselves and to serve others. So this morning, I want to look at the discipline of service. What it is, how do we refocus it, comparing it to the way that we might usually think of what service is, right? Service by the world standards is what Foster calls self-righteous service. I call it natural service. How do we get from there to a place of true service in the kingdom of God? And then I want to 
talk about the place of humility in the pr- practice and try to close with some concrete, concrete examples to get us thinking about how do we implement this into our lives on a regular basis. So in the words of Foster, he said, service enables us to say no to the world's games of promotion and authority. It abolishes our need and desire for a pecking order. Basically, what Foster is saying is that service in the kingdom of God levels the playing field. It levels when it comes to who or how or why we might serve someone else. Because we're prone to to, calculate in our service. Thinking about which objects or which items of service, acts of service, might help us get ahead in the world or might look really good on a resume. Or figure out who are the cultural elites that we desire to rub elbows with, right? Those are the people that we we might want to serve. Now, this isn't about just eliminating leadership and authority, but about redefining, reorienting it. What Jesus is abolishing here is the the authority of status. Because in the kingdom matrix of Jesus, no one is beneath us. There's no one that is, is too low for us to serve, But at the same time, we're not obligated to serve anyone who society might put above us. Now, of course, we still have an authority structure. Jesus was not an advocate for anarchy. Uh, We still have a president that leads our country. Might still have a boss at work, right? Even our church has an authority structure, right? I'm the pastor of the church. I have a responsibility to listen to God and lead the congregation. But what service helps us reshuffle is that the president or the pastor, for that matter, is not more, any more cherished not more loved in the kingdom of God because of their functional authority. Additionally, the president or pastor of the church is not above serving the needs of others. There's nothing that is too far beneath us. Jesus puts this very bluntly in Matthew 20, 25 to 28. It says, Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So leadership structures may exist but there are none that are too high and lifted up that they are above having the heart of a servant. Right? If, Jesus is, if Jesus, who is God in the flesh, was willing to serve, was willing to submit himself to God and to humble himself before those who arguably were beneath him, then far be it from us to put on that kind of front. So let's, try to, let's look at this and try to break down some, some examples of this. Here's some examples. Contrasting, I think, the way that we are prone to service, right? What what I'm calling natural service to the the service of God's kingdom. What should be true of service? So natural service is through human effort, right? We go through the motions. We do it by our own power. If it's through natural effort or human effort, it means that we are in control of the situation, which we'll continue to unpack. True service, on the other hand, is propagated through divine promptings and whispers. Service is not just about pulling myself up by my bootstraps and serving others through sheer force of the will. 
but it's about waiting, waiting on God's leading, trusting in His nudges, His motivation. Right? Like all of the disciplines, if we focus purely on the externals, we're going to look like we're doing just fine, but we will have fallen into a trap of legalism. Right? True service is about inviting God to transform. I mean, this is true of so much of our life. It's not just about going through the motions. It's not just about forcing yourself to act a certain way, but it's about inviting God to transform our hearts and minds so that the natural output is for Him. Right? He is the fuel for the work of His kingdom. Next, natural service is often strategic. I mentioned a moment ago how we like to calculate when it comes to service. We want our service to make the, I mean, who doesn't want their service to be impactful? But we operate out of a scarcity mindset. I have limited resources. I have limited time. I, I want to make sure the things that I do are effective for God. But in true service, the goal is, is not about placing value on the outcome. Man, this, this flies in the face of capitalism. It flies in the face of, you know, productivity, of the industrial revolution. But the thing is that we, we need to get out, get out of our heads and into our heads is that the Bible nowhere does it call us to effectiveness. What I see the Bible calling us to time and time again is faithfulness. It means that there is not a difference in value between service that is grand and that which is small or basic. Closely related to that, natural service requires or at least desires external rewards. We want to be noticed for our work, right? You know, we, we, we do that volunteering so that we, you know, have something great to put on our, our resumes. Right? College applications, I, I don't know if any of you are thinking about that. What kind of service or volunteer applications you have in there? So often we look for our sense of identity and value from others and contrast that with true service, which is content. Being content in hiddenness. Knowing that we're seen by God. One day God will look at the work we've done for his kingdom and proclaim, well done, thy good and faithful servant, but it's so easy to try to get there early. Short circuit that process and find it from our peers instead. Natural service is need-based, we serve others with the expectation that it'll, it'll be reciprocated, right? This is that attitude of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. I mentioned this last week. We give gifts with strings attached. If I help my neighbor, I expect him to be there when, uh, when I'm the one in need of help. But true service is given freely. Of course, it'd always be nice to be, have it reciprocated, but it's not necessary. That's not why we, that's not our motivation for doing these acts of service. Natural service picks and chooses who to serve. We want to have control. We want to be able to veto the call to serve someone who we might perceive as an undesirable. Right? Lord, I don't want to help that person. They, they reek of alcohol. Or I want the freedom to nick something if it comes across too difficult or asks too much of us. Man, Lord, that person just wears me out. I don't want to take their phone call today. We want to, have, we want to pick and choose who we serve but true service is indiscriminate. Right? The Bible is clear that there ought not to be a shred of favoritism when it comes to how we serve. James talks about this in his letter, uh, you know, when we, when we seat folks for church. 
that, that they talk, he talks about people giving good seats to the wealthy, right? Sit in these, you know, like VIP seating only. But, you know, the poor, you could sit at my feet. We're kind of our equivalent of standing room only. This gets to that piece about Jesus of, of eliminating authority of status. Like, I don't get to tell God that I don't want to serve someone because they're weird or because I think they smell or they cuss too much. I don't get to put limits on, on uh, you know, my serving. That I'm like, I could choose to stop serving because I've determined that they're great people. Or I, I said, hey, you know what, they're, they're, they're not really strong followers. They're living in disobedience. God, you're not calling me to serve them. I don't get to make that, discrimi- that discrimination. Natural service is affected by moods. God, I don't feel like serving today. I didn't get a good night's sleep. I mean, think of the excuses. I'm hungry. I have, I have other things that I'd rather do in my schedule. Or you can't say like, God, you know what, I'm, gonna give, I'm, I'm not going to give up my Netflix time for that neighbor that needs help changing their flat tire. That's my time. True service is faithful because of the need. Response to God. Lastly, natural service is temporary. I know this is what's often true of me. Um, it's leaning into service as if it were a job, right? That you're on the clock for certain hours of the day. As opposed to true service being like a lifestyle. Being spontaneous. Being all hours of the day or night that God gives us that nudge to, to, to serve. We don't get to, to clock out. We don't get to ignore the needs around us. Now if we're going to transition from natural service to true service, it, it's going to require a transformation in us. And I would say that the virtue that is most closely associated with service is humility. I mentioned last week that I really like the definition of humility, which is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Right? Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility dismantles many of these barriers that we construct in order to avoid service. It helps us to model the attitude and posture of Jesus Christ. We sang humble and, or gentle and lowly, which that, that word lowly can often also be translated as, as humility, humble. I think maybe it's the gentle. One of the two can. All right, Foster says that of all the disciplines, service is the most growth and transformation of our souls towards this posture, towards this, this uh, virtue of humility. Now, the thing about humility is you can't just get it by going after it directly. You cannot force yourself to be humble. It is an impossibility. Now, many of you know I come from the world of science. My, my background is, uh, is in science. Um, humility is kind of like, so I apologize if this like goes over many of your heads, but it's just what comes to my mind. Hopefully, you know, those of you that are like science nerds like me will get it. Humility is kind of like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You'd be like, huh? What's that? Basically, in an atom, we have a pretty good idea of, you know, protons and neutrons. But those electron orbitals, we cannot with any certainty, uh, with full certainty, let me rephrase that, know where those electrons sit, where they are at any given point. And the reason is, in order to study the electrons, you have to put energy, right? Think of light into a system which activates the electron that's already moved. You cannot pin down the precise location of an electron. Humility is kind of nebulous like that. Because if you begin to focus on humility, the truth is you're in danger of succumbing to pride, of just how humble you are. You know, you, you can't go after it directly. 
Foster argues that it is through service that we might attain humility. Now, again, not directly, but as a byproduct of this transformed attitude towards others that we receive through service. You can't just say, I'm going to work on my humility today. Work on your service, and you will by nature find that humility has increased, leveled up. Now, humility is important in this conversation because of what I'm going to address next. Anytime we consider these idealized perspectives of true service, it begs the question, will others take advantage of me? If you're out there, any hour of the day or night, not being able to choose the, the, you know, the knee, not having control over it, are others going to take advantage of me? I've said true service means that we don't get to choose who we serve. Jesus didn't say, just, you know, care for the needs of your friends. But he called us to love our enemies. The ones that probably think very differently than us, that we might disdain a little bit. True service means we don't get to set the terms of the limits of those needs. Now, in the world today, with that kind of posture, I feel like you're just looking to be taken advantage of. We've all probably can point to examples, whether it was ourself or in someone else's life that we've seen where someone's just trying to help but gets walked all over. So what are the limits to service? Foster would argue that there aren't any. And I, friends, I have to say, like, this is still a difficult pill for me to swallow, but, but let me at least lay out his argument in this. He says there is a difference in choosing to serve versus choosing to be a servant. Did you hear that? There's a difference, Foster argues, from choosing to serve versus choosing to be a servant. Because if we choose to serve, that just sets us back down that natural column of service. I still have some control. I still get to be in charge, and therefore I can protect myself from being stepped on by others. But when we choose to be a servant at the Lord's disposal, we give up the right to be in charge. We give up the right to decide who and when we will serve. But that also means that we cannot be manipulated. If we carry ourselves this way, we will be stepped on. But in the words of Foster, he says, but who can hurt someone who is freely chosen to be stepped on? Those are some hard words in our kind of individualized Uh, you know, the uplifting of the individual in our culture today. I mean, I read something like that from Richard Foster, and I think, man, that almost sounds masochistic. Like, I can think of plenty of ways that I could be hurt, even if I give myself over to others. But I think this is meant to go back to the source of our strength and identity, right? My value, my power, who I am is not derived from what others think about me. It's not derived from how others treat me. It's not derived on whether or not someone takes advantage of me. But it's from the overwhelming love of God. The God who has said he will watch over me, that he will protect me. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it promise a life that is free from suffering. Protection doesn't mean the absence of suffering. But it does promise that God is with us every step of the way. I mean, think of the great psalm. It states, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right, proximity to suffering, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. I think this is something radical for us to lean into. And again, this might be 
difficult. I'm not, I'm not there yet myself. So I'm, I'm preaching in a, as a work in progress. But I think this illustrates the difference of our perspective of comfort and safety that we have in the 21st century compared to the saints of old. St. Francis of Assisi put it this way. He said, perfect, so if, you know, the, the guy that could you know, talk to squirrels and birds and whatnot. I know that's how it's usually superficially referenced. He said this, perfect joy is in the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit, which Christ gives to his friends, is that of conquering oneself and willingly enduring sufferings, insults, humiliations, and hardships for the love of Christ. He suggests that joy, true joy, is found when we endure being walked all over for the love of Jesus Christ. That's the attitude of true service, taking joy in all circumstances that we do for the glory of God, even if we are debased in the process. Can be, that's going to be a lifelong struggle for most of us, I would imagine. I don't know if I'll ever get there, but that's the ideal that is set before us in Jesus. Jesus was attentive to the people's needs. I mean, you could argue he was walked all over, but his identity was not in that. Well, let's, as we kind of start the process of closing, because I got some more. I'm going to give us some concrete examples. I want to try to help paint the picture, prime the pump, if you will, of what this could actually look like in our lives. And let me say just yet again, service is not a list of things to do. I'm I'm like going to give you a to-do list, if you will, but that's not ultimately what service is. It's a way of living. These are just, what I'm providing are examples of what that outcome could look like in your life. It is crucial like all of these outward disciplines, right? What, what do we look at? Um, simplicity, they're all S's. I was going to make a joke about that next week because I think it's an S too. Simplicity, uh, service, submission, and um, so- silence and solitude. All of these are external disciplines, according to Foster. But they all have to begin inwardly, where we solidify that inward heart attitude, that reliance on Christ. But service is an outward practice. From that transformation of the inner heart, it must take place in the public life. So our first example is right out of the scriptures. We find the story of Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. She was known for her good work. She unfortunately passes away. had made for them. Happy ending. Uh, Peter raises her from the dead. There's like a really neat uh, like Easter egg wordplay in the section, but that's a story for another day. But Dorcas was a woman who was known. She had a reputation, excuse me, in, in the area or the region for using her time and talents to provide garments and other necessities to the downtrodden, to those who were widows who in that culture could not provide for themselves. So that's just an example to get us going. So here's the first one for us. We could serve others with our time. In a world packed with productivity, service is not always the most efficient use of our time. This gets back to one of those, those, those examples of natural service that I said, that we, it's calculating, that it's, you know, we, we want it to be impactful. Um, sometimes we feel too busy to serve others, but we can honor them by giving of our time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this great quote, He was a pastor in Germany during the World War II era. He said, nobody is too good for the meanest service. 
one who worries about the loss of time that such petty outward acts of helpfulness entail is usually taking the importance of his own career too solemnly. Are you making time for others? Or are you taking the importance of your career or schedule a little too seriously? This is one of those things that we see time and time again in the life of Jesus that I just keep getting struck by, is that he, he honored people with his time. He often worked at a pace that allowed for interruptions, and he was never put off by those interruptions. He was never put off by those intrusions, but was fully present with every person he helped. I, I, my favorite picture of this is Mark, I think it's chapter four, I don't remember. I think it's past that. It's not chapter four. Anyway, it's, it's where, he, you know, Jairus, he comes to, to I believe it's Capernaum, and, and, and uh, Jairus said, hey, my daughter is sick. She is on her bed. Can you come? And he just does. Person of influence. And as he's walking, many probably know this, right? a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. It's like, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And she does. And, you know, Jesus, and she's healed instantly. And Jesus could have just been like, all right, we're in a hurry. I don't have to, like, she's been healed. It's been no big deal, right? But Jesus stops. And he takes focus to this woman who had been on the outskirts of society, who had been neglected, who had been harmed and oppressed at the hand of doctors, had spent all that she had, had not gotten better, but gotten worse, right? Jesus doesn't just heal her physically, but he brings emotional healing to her by giving her visibility. Who touched me? And she comes and says that it was, it was her. She comes trembling. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He stops right, to this person on the margins of society. While I'm sure Jairus, who is this you know, person of influence, is tapping his foot and patiently waiting, Jesus, come on, Jesus, come on, Jesus, come on. And they get to the house, and Jairus' daughter is dead, but he raises her from the dead as well. His daughter, um, uh, I, we actually don't know her name, a uh, 12-year-old girl, but again, Jesus was never in a hurry. He always pr- arrived precisely at the time that he meant to. It's a Lord of the Rings reference, if you didn't get it. Gandalf. Anyway, let me, let me go on. We can serve others by guarding their reputation. Uh, there should not be a place for backstabbing and gossip in the people of God. Uh, there is always that temptation to share just that juicy bit of gossip to provide that uptick in popularity. But we should not say things about others that were not in front of others about someone that we're not willing to say if they were, not, if they were present. Let me say that again. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't say things about someone to others that we would not be willing to say if they were present. But I think that also means, you know, and this can be really hard, is standing up for others when they are being gossiped about in their presence you might be in a situation where you have friends that kind of like to talk about that other friend that you have uh, in, in ways that are somewhat disparaging. It is a service to them when you, you know, can say like, hey, so-and-so is my friend. Like, that's not, I really don't appreciate you talking about them like that. That's not how they're like, or whatever it might be. Again, that requires courage. That requires, I mean, you, you might actually spend your friendship credits through, through making statements like that, but it is a way that we can serve others or even just guarding the reputation. Maybe it's not even a friend. Maybe it's someone that is someone you don't even like very much, but they are made in the image of God. They have inherent worth, and they are deserving of dignity. All right, service. There is service in being served. We see this negative, this, this example negatively, negatively, 
when Peter initially refuses to have his feet washed by Jesus. He, he's balking at Jesus' demeaning act. And what's implied is, is that if Peter was the one that was calling the shots, this wouldn't happen. Right? He, he wouldn't be washing feet. Are you willing to receive a gift from someone else? Can you take a compliment? It is a gift to receive those words of encouragement. It's a gift when someone does something kind for us. It's a gift. You don't need to repay it. But usually, oftentimes, our difficulty in receiving flows out of our pride. We don't want to feel indebted to someone else. I mean, you'll notice a lot of these things are very simple acts of service, but it's often not how I live my natural lives. Service, there's a service in common courtesy and compassion, and so we can find simple ways of acknowledging others and affirm their worth. Speaking kindly, being polite, using please and thank yous, writing thank you notes after gifts. Not because we have to, I had to when I was growing up, but we learn that it's a way for us to share our joy with the giver. It's a blessing. One that I'm notoriously bad at is RSVPs. I can't tell you how many weddings I've been invited to. groom had to like follow up to me and be like, you guys coming wedding? Like if I could just put my stuff together. Uh, these are simple acts of service to bless others. This courtesy can be seen in the way that we treat those who we are closest to. Over a decade later, I still remember very vividly Bruce Bickle. He was preaching at my, my last church, um, guest preacher, and he preached a sermon that he said every time he and his wife would have a fight, he would go downstairs and he would make her iced tea because he knew how much she loved it. And he always followed up with the witty remark of, you know, sharing that he got pretty good at making iced tea uh, over the years. But it was a simple act of courtesy an act of service for his wife right on the heels of conflict. Next is the service of hospitality. It's hard for us to imagine, hard for me to imagine, but there was a time when there weren't such things as like hotels. You know, residents would have guest houses where travelers could stay. Now, I'm not saying that we like open our homes up to strangers, but how do we use the spaces that we have to honor others? You know, if, if you are a host, you're having people over, let's just say you're having a dinner party and you're hosting, I want to let you know, that I want to free you up, that the guests are not expecting you to be like a waiter or a waitress, doting on their every need. They just want you to be present with them. Beyond the home, there's the space of the church. Is this a space that is hospitable for others? As I said during their announcements, you know, we're looking to get our nursery up and running. Is it clean? Are the bathrooms stocked with paper towels or toilet paper? Are we greeting guests who come in? Or are we just keeping to ourselves? You know, I tell my kids all the time that the church is meant to be like a family. Like we all have unique gifts that we bring to the table. You know, we, don't, we don't just do this for ourselves, but that we do that to be a friendly, to be a welcoming place for others so they can also seek unencumbered the, the presence of God. Last example I have for you is the service of listening and bearing the burdens of others. Right, Paul tells us in Galatians 6 that we are to bear each other's burdens. We can listen to others with compassion and patience. Most people who are embattled with grief aren't looking for you to have all the answers. I know I'm, I'm a fix-it kind of person. That's not necessarily what people who are going through grief are looking for. After tragedy struck Job, his three closest friends sat with him in silence for seven 
days. That was good. The joke is the problem came when they opened their mouths. Weep with those who weep. Right? Be present. A listening ear. A shoulder to cry on. A friend of mine says that a, shar- a sorrow shared is halved, but a joy shared is doubled. You can be there for one another. I mean, the possibilities are endless. Like, the, these, are, I, these are examples of service that might not be the run-of-the-mill things you would think about. We, we'd all think about going to Africa and build wells. Right? We all think about serving those who, um, you know, are struggling with houselessness. Like, and those are absolutely things that we can pursue as well. But chances are we need to start small. Right? We need to cultivate that attitude of, of uh, that posture of humility, and it's through doing simple not these grand acts, but those simple, mundane, ordinary. We, ne- we can carry ourselves in the humility of Jesus, thinking about others and serving them with dignity and honor. And again, this is a, this is a hard practice because we, we, I know I want to be in control. I want to determine the limits of those service. But service to God means that we're not the ones who are in control. We submit to his authority and leading as we sang and as our opening song, we go where he sends us. Follow the guidance he gives. So as we think about this this week, here's some things. So thinking about how can you move from that natural service, right, that's kind of by your own effort, controlling all that, to true service for God's kingdom, what might that look like? What are some ways that you can start pursuing that without just like, you know, putting your nose to the grindstone for it? Is God calling you to serve someone who you don't want to? As I'm talking about service or maybe one of those examples, is there someone that God's bringing to mind that's like, this is something that I should probably do. I'm not really excited about it. And, you know, just, just acknowledge, like, it could be something broken in you. It could also be that they're just like, not a real pleasant person to be around. That's on them, but that doesn't mean we get to be discriminated in Equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, taking on the form of a slave, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, may that be the, the motivation that we have, the model of what it means to love our neighbor as ourself, to think of the needs of others above our, ourselves. God, guide us in these acts of service that you might cultivate in yourself humility, not that we would look at it and go after it right away, but that maybe uh, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, we would look back and see that you have called us into things that we never would have dreamed doing at this moment in time. God, may you uh, add, multiply upon yourself the service and uh, knowing that it is, is not for ourselves that we do this, but it's for your kingdom, it's for your glory. Free us up to do these things uh, in your guidance. In Christ's name, amen.